Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And once again, welcome to the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 168. I hope that everyone's having a great week. Lots going on in the world right now, but you know I like to keep things moving forward. Lots of great guests coming up very soon. Some phenomenal college players, arguably the best mid-amateur over the last 25 years, one of the best senior amateurs in the last 25 years. Again, lots of great people coming by on the back of the range, so make sure you're subscribed and make sure you're telling your friends about the back of the range. As most of you know, I had the opportunity to be at the USAM at Bandon Dunes, and I was a special contributor for the USGA. I was able to contribute some photos, videos, and interviews throughout the entire week. And in a couple weeks, I'm heading back out on the road. I'll be heading to Merido Golf Club just outside of Dallas, Texas to cover the inaugural East-West matches. It took several years to get it off the ground, but two 18-man teams will face off in a Ryder Cup-style format. The teams are comprised of six senior amateurs, 10 mid-ams, and two ams under the age of 25. Some of the biggest names in amateur golf will be there competing. Many have been former guests on the back of the range. Names like Hagestad, Harvey, Elliot, Esteve, Michael Muir, Nathan Smith. The list goes on and on. It's going to be very exciting to reconnect with all of these guys and to showcase this event in person. So I put a link to the East-West Matches website in the show notes of this episode. They also have an Instagram page. The link to that will be in the notes as well. So make sure you follow that. There will be much more coming soon on this podcast to kind of highlight what the matches are all about. So make sure you are following. Let's get right into it. My guest on this episode is Lauren Greenleaf, the recent winner of the Amateur Golf Alliance's inaugural Women's Amateur Championship. Lauren and I covered many topics. You know, we spoke about her start in the game, how she walked onto her college team at the University of Virginia. She's won numerous titles within the Virginia State Golf Association. She's made many USGA appearances. And in her first year of eligibility as a mid-am, she won the 2015 U.S. Mid-Amateur Championship. Lauren is also looking to follow in the footsteps of her friend and former guest of the back of the range, Megan Stasi. And by that, I mean she is attempting to make the 2021 Curtis Cup team as a mid-amateur. It's just another great story to follow heading into 2021. When I ask listeners in person or via email or through social media what kind of guests you want to hear from, mid-ams are the most requested. And one of the most interesting topics that comes up is how do everyday people, the mid-ams, balance work and life and family and are still able to play championship golf? Well, Lauren has found a pretty good formula, and it's clearly paying off, one that you'll have to hear to believe. Let's get this episode underway. Lauren, welcome to the back of the range. How are you? Doing well. Happy to be here, Ben. Thanks for having me on. You recently came down to South Florida, picked up the inaugural Amateur Golf Alliance Women's Amateur at Die Preserve, so congrats to that. I, I normally start with questions about your upbringing and starting the game but uh, this is the most recent thing so you know it's kind of rare in the amateur scene to see new tournaments popping up 
Um, I know this was uh, really a passion project for, I know, Tara Joy Connolly and just a, you know, basically the entire women's game. When did you first learn about this tournament? I think I was at a tournament with Tara maybe probably over two years ago when she started kicking around the idea and uh, talking to the fellow mediums to see if it was something that folks would be interested in playing in. I immediately got really excited. Um, Because if you look at the amateur calendar every year, and I play a ton of tournaments, but um, there's really just the U.S. Women's Mid-Amateur and maybe the International Four Ball in February that are true mid-amateur events. And everything else is uh, competing against juniors and college kids. And um, really in women's golf, beyond seniors and juniors, once you hit the college season, so um, post-August, there's really nothing to play in. So all the tournaments are either January during the summer, and then there's nothing. Um, so I got really excited when Tara brought this tournament to the table and starting to see if people were interested. And I immediately said, like, yes, let me know when the date is. I'll be there. Um, and it was really a labor of love for her to get it up and running. I know we tried to kick it off last year, but there are some scheduling conflicts with the Southern and a couple other big tournaments. So um it didn't get off the ground. Then it was at Lob Lolly in May and COVID hit. So I'm really glad that we're finally able to play it at a great golf course um, a week or two ago. So that was awesome. I think it was a really big week for the mid-am game. Yeah. Yeah. The Dive Preserve is just a great, great course and really happy it got off the ground. And, you know, it's, it's funny. It almost feels like, yeah, you're going to go compete and you're going to play, but it almost feels like it was an all hands on deck trying to almost promote the tournament. Did you have trouble or, or what was the feeling around the medium game of trying to get people to come down and play in it, especially with the complications of COVID, but it almost feels like you're all playing in it, but you're also trying to promote it at the same time. Yeah. And I think we have a really strong women's video community. So um, we're not large in number, but um, there's a ton of great players out there. So Julia Potter, Bob, Ellen Port, Martha Leach, Megan, Ina, um, Tara, to just name a couple sure. of them. And we have a really close-knit community. So I think it was really a let's all make a commitment to being here um, and getting this tournament off the ground. So while it wasn't the biggest field out there, I think it had a ton of USGA champions. It had all the strong mid-ams um, that were able to make it down to play. And I think that's just a testament to um, kind of supporting each other and supporting the community. I know personally at tournaments the last um, kind of year or so, anytime I'll play with uh, a girl who's a senior in college who's about to graduate, who's not going to turn pro, I'd be like, hey, have you heard about this tournament? Here's right. the Instagram link. Uh, it's 23 and over, come out. So we've been trying to push it grassroots that way too through some of the other events. And I know they made it 23 and up to try and grab some of those um, folks who just graduated um, from college but didn't necessarily know what they wanted to do yet. So I think the 23 kind of age bracket was really great for this event. I know there were a couple of folks like that that came out and played. We are. I, I am going to ask you about your own personal achievements. I mean, you're USGA champion yourself and just recently was on the, the Curtis Cup practice uh, squad that, that formed, I believe it was a couple of years ago now. I mean, everything's mm-hmm. going to change a little bit with, with COVID and um, them moving the Curtis Cup to 2021. But uh, I'm fascinated with the amateur game and all different uh, factions of it. I was, you know, I was just at the Mid-Am Championship uh, this past weekend. I was also, to, uh, you know, watching juniors play. I've seen I've seen it all. I love watching the seniors play, but I'm curious how challenging is it in that age bracket? From like you said, when when women are done playing in college, and they're not yet ready for to play mid ams, or, or obviously that 
that age range where it's kind of difficult to get participation. Mm-hmm. I mean, what are the conversations that you have with people like, um, you know, like Ina and Shannon Johnson and Megan Stasi about, okay, how do we grow the game when it is, whether it's male or female, it's just a very challenging time to, to spend on a sport that requires a lot of effort. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that kind of I tackle within the state of Virginia too. So I sit on the board of the Virginia State Golf Association and lead our membership and participation committee. And if I look at all of the different kind of groups of golfers, I think one of the most challenging um, is really the kind of 22 to 30 year old right. female kind of talented golfer. Um, cause if I think about my own journey too, um, I've grown a lot in my game and I've actually play a lot better now than I did when I was competing at UVA. Um, oh, but like, since well, graduating, we need to ask about that too. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> we can definitely talk about that later on, but, yeah. um, I've played straight through for my entire career and I never really stopped playing amateur golf. But for me, it was personally a big challenge to figure out early on in my career at 22, joining the Boston Consulting Group, I want to play golf, but how do I keep doing that? Um, I think one of the biggest challenges on the women's side is just the availability of tournaments. So most of the tournaments on the women's golf schedule occur like right smack in the middle of the week, like Monday through Thursday or Tuesday through Thursday. And when you're starting a career, that's a really challenging thing to have to take vacation days in the middle of the week to play in a bunch of tournaments against college kids and juniors, you don't really have a community at that point. Um, Cause you haven't quite joined the mid am ranks and you're kind of in this in-between state. So I think to the extent that we can figure out how to create more reasonable playing opportunities for folks in their own age bracket, kind of post-college is going to go a long way to helping to keep people in the game. Cause my viewpoint is, is if you can keep someone playing golf, post-college it's gonna be a lot easier to get that one that person to stay in the game and competing versus trying to recapture them in their kind of upper 30s after they've started their family so how do we get more people to keep playing and i think the answer is to kind of create some of these tournaments like the aga women's championship or women's amateur championship where the tournament falls on a thursday friday saturday or friday saturday sunday like some of the men's invitationals and put them at good golf courses where people want to play and just create those opportunities for folks to build their community within golf and also kind of find their home um, in amateur golf. So I think getting some of these events started is going to be kind of really critical over the next couple of years to help build that community a little bit more. If you had to put your hat on and just say, man, I would love to create this tournament for, for the women's game, any course you want to, any setup you want to, whether it's a four ball, whether it's an individual stroke, metal, match, <laughs> anything, What's on, what's on the bucket list? If you just get to, and nothing to do with AGA, AGA, this is, this is the, uh, the Greenleaf Invitational. What, what kind of, Mm -hmm. what kind of setup are you looking at? So I personally love match play. I think it's a great format for people who can't practice 40 hours a week because you know exactly what you have to do. I'm very competitive by nature. I have to go out and play this one person. If I make an eight on a hole, it doesn't matter. Nothing to make eights that often, okay. but still. Um, so I love match play. I think it's a big part of amateur golf. And if I look through kind of the men's tournament schedule, um, they have things like the Crump Cup. Obviously, to play Pine Valley it would be awesome every year in a match play bracket at a very prestigious course. Okay. So probably something like that. Um, we actually have something coming on the schedule next year. Um, that's similar. It was supposed to start this year due to COVID, but I know that National Golf Links of America is starting a kind of women's invitational match play event. Wow. Which is a pretty awesome experience. Um, So 
I know I got canceled due to COVID this year and they committed to keeping it on the schedule next year. So I definitely have that one penciled in. I, I think you can put that one in ink, actually. Uh, <laughs> that's that's fantastic. Um, wow, I did not know that. That's going to be fun. Yeah, I got an email about it this year and I immediately penciled it in on my calendar the second I got the email. Wow, <laughs> I was like, yep, I'm playing that. Yep, we're doing that. <laughs> so that's that's fantastic. All right, we have skipped over your start in the game. I want to brief, briefly touch upon this because... Um, you know, me being a, a native South Floridian, there's there's golf 12 months out of the year, and you can always find mm-hmm. a game and a, probably a tournament or something to play in. But you grew up in Virginia, as you mentioned, you're, you're you know, multiple-time champion in the Virginia State Golf Association. You're sitting on their board helping out with membership. Tell me a little bit about your start in the game. Yeah, so I grew up playing an international country club in Fairfax, Virginia. So we're about 20 minutes from Washington, D.C., um, just to put it on the map. Um, so I started playing at the age of five. So we had a junior golf program at our club and we've had a lot of good juniors come through it, but, uh, basically there'd be kind of golf instruction on Tuesday night for an hour for different age groups. And then just kind of come out Wednesday morning with your parent and play nine holes at like six 30 in the morning before everyone had to go to work. So I started that as a five holer when I was five, my dad absolutely loves the game. Um, He probably plays close to 200 rounds a year and he's a full-time attorney and um, he is the most competitive net player that I've ever met in my life. So I get a lot of my competitive drive from him. Um, But I just went out with dad, hit balls at the range, did the junior golf program. We'd go play all the time and ride around in the cart and kind of tee one up in the fairway and play from 150 yards in. And I loved the game when I was a kid. Um, I was also a competitive swimmer. So I swam year round from the time when I was probably six until 16 for a decade. So I was really big into swimming. Um, So it's always around the game. I think a lot of the playing opportunities that exist today for kids at a really young age to play um, kind of PGA Junior League or all these AJG events that are on the map now, those didn't really exist when I was growing up. So I played in a lot of the state things and I'd say when I was 12 or 13, I really came back to golf. So one of the big drivers and motivators for me was I had been a swimmer. I was a really good athlete. I always hit it further than all the other kids. That was pretty exciting to me um, as a young kid and drew me to golf, but really started getting serious when I was 12 or 13. There were two other girls at my club who were also pretty good players. So we had our own little community and I think we pushed each other. And I think I qualified for my first USGA junior girls championship when I was 17 I played in a couple of junior PGAs um, but really started to love the game and the fact that you could kind of get better each time the game was always different it was kind of a puzzle that I like to solve I'm very kind of math oriented so really fell in love with it as a teenager and then um, looked towards college. I had a really interesting college recruiting experience. So I was kind of a late bloomer in golf and wasn't on the AJGA circuit and didn't get a lot of looks from college coaches. So I talked to some folks at smaller schools and got some mild interest, but there weren't a ton of golf scholarships on the table for me. So I applied to a bunch of schools and UVA was obviously in state for me and tuition was affordable and it was a great school. So I got in there on my own and said, let me try and walk on the golf team. So this is kind of where my golf career kind of really kickstarted. And it was a big pivot point for me, I think. Um, So I reached out to coach Kim Llewellyn and said, Hey, I'm from Virginia. Um, I know you're kind of new coach at UVA. You've only been here a year, so you're not fully in the Virginia recruiting scene, but I just started as a first year here and I'd love to come try out for the golf team. 
and talking to Kim, looking backwards, she's like, I don't really want this person to come walk on the team. Like our team's ranked fourth in the country. Uh Like I have to have a tryout now. Like this is going to be a pain in the butt. So she kept deferring and pushing it back. So here I am like eight weeks into the school year. I don't have a car. I haven't practiced that much. I'm like, I want to try out for the golf team. I need to go to the driving range. I'm kind of stressed out about it. Um, So I'm living in the first year dorms at UVA and I'm like, well, Birdwood's only five miles away. I could probably ride a bike there. Oh no! Um, So I went to someone, I didn't have a bike either. So I went to someone who lived on my hall and said, Hey, can I borrow your bike for the afternoon? So I borrow this girl's bike and I take four clubs and lay them out across the handlebars and go uh-huh. biking down Ivy Road to Birdwood to hit balls. Um, so I go out and, and I'm do sure that a this is just a flat. I'm sure this is a flat road. There's no danger whatsoever of you <laughs> eating it and hitting a curb. There's, I mean, I'm sure there's no danger at all of that, right? Yeah, I mean Ivy Road in Charlottesville. There's no sidewalks. It's kind of a two-lane road, and it's rolling hills at Charlottesville. So it's not the easiest bike ride, but I'm like, I really got to practice. The the glamorous beginnings of these USGA champions. (laughs) Um, All right, so you're barreling down the road in Charlottesville, and you get to the range. So I get to the range. I kind of do this a couple times to practice, just to get ready for the tryout. I'm going to go play 18 holes with the golf team. Is kind of what I aligned on with Kim. Okay. So I show up to the first day of tryouts. I actually think I take a taxi. I take like a Charlottesville taxi <laughs> to get to the golf course That's for tryouts. <laughs> and I'm hitting on the range, getting warmed up. And Kim comes up to me before the round. She's like, are you the girl who's been riding her bike to the golf course to club? Yes, I am. Because the, the team's seen this like four days this week and they think it's hilarious. Well. Um. So I was like, yep, that's me. I really wanted to practice. I think she felt horrible that she had pushed the tryout back eight weeks at this point with me like riding back and forth. Yeah. But um, kind of short end of the story is I tee it up. I think I birdie the first hole. I'm two under for four. And she walks up to me on 5T at Birdwood and goes, um, welcome to the team. <laughs> I think you're going to make it. I think I shot 71 that day. And was able to join the UVA golf team eight weeks in as a true kind of walk on with a tryout. So that was really my beginning of that's a, kind of golf at UVA. It was definitely a pivot point in my career. That's a great, great story. Um, that's fantastic. I just, the, the visual of just uh, on the bike rolling in and your teammates, I'm guessing they were, I'm guessing they were pretty accepting of the fact that, Hey, we just, where the hell did she come from? They were, and I don't think there was anyone, there was one person from the state of Virginia on the team at the time who I had sort of known through some of the Virginia stuff, but everyone was really welcoming. Um, They nicknamed me Lance Armstrong or LA for my college career. It was before all the scandal with Lance, but um, they called me LA. Kim still calls me LA every time I see her at tournaments now. Um, So that was kind of my beginning at UVA golf. And then by the time I was a fourth year I had earned a scholarship and earned a place in the starting lineup. So it was definitely a progression from the kid on the bike to uh, competing in, I think, three NCAA championships. That's so great. Oh, that's such a great story. So I wanted to ask you also, you know, in Virginia now, like I said, native Cephalery, and I'm just a, you know, candy ass from Florida and always with the, the warm weather and we can play year round. But up there in Virginia, I'm guessing your your golf calendar, so to speak, and the, the time that you get to spend in the game is somewhat Mm -hmm. limited due to weather. Um, Do you think you would have had the same passion for golf if you got to play year-round? Or just having maybe a little bit of a restricted schedule helped you just like, okay, I'm going to 
go all in with the time I have and then can't wait to get back to it. So I'm a little bit of a golf crazy. So believe okay. it or not, I play I play year round oh. in Northern Virginia. Oh, okay. Um, we get about on average ten inches of snow across the course of the winter. So there's obviously a couple pockets where I can't play because the course is closed. But I definitely play outside year round. It's not pleasant in the winter <laughs> for sure when it's 32 degrees and a little breezy. Um, I think it's helped me train, and I play really. I play well in bad weather. Um, okay. At the AGA, the second day it was pouring rain. It was a little chilly. I shot the 68. And I think I play well in winds because I play in the wintertime and I learned how to flight it low and I learned how to kind of play three-quarter shots and figure it out. Uh, my dad is also addicted to golf. So there'll be a bunch of times in the winter where I'm sitting there on a Saturday and it's 34 degrees and sunny. I'm like, I'm not going to play today. It's too cold. And then I'll get a text message. I think it's sunny. It'll be pretty warm today. We can cruise around and play in two hours. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I kind of get guilted by pops and I go out and play a lot in the winter. Um, my country club in Fairfax also added two indoor trackman bays um, last year, which has been nice for kind of indoor practice in the winter. And then I work with Roger Hatcher at 1757 Golf Club, who's a PGA professional there. And he has kind of an indoor outdoor hitting setup. So last year getting ready for Curtis Cup. I saw him a whole bunch in the winter where I'd fly in on a Thursday night, land at Dulles Airport at 6, and I'd be hitting with Roger from 6.30 to 9, wow. <laughs> kind of in the cold, just prepping for Curtis Scott to get an extra practice day in. So I can definitely play year-round. I'm kind of looking, and I've had my eye out on South Florida. I'm kind of looking at Hilton Head, trying to say, well, maybe the winter is going forward. Let me go down there for three months and play in practice. Um and just fly in and out of those airports. So I'm trying to make it work and figure out where I want to be. So hopefully going forward, I'll get some warmer weather in the winter too. And you do have to kind of work every once in a while, don't you? I mean, is I mean, you're a mid-am, so you obviously have started a professional career outside of uh, outside of golf. You, you did not turn pro. You went the rank of uh, of you know the the, the working person, that, uh, so to speak. So. I know this story, and you, you've shared a little bit previously about it, but you have this, <laughs> I mean, for all of us hackers and weekend warriors that have said, you know, if I could just take a little bit of time off work and I could really focus on the game, maybe get a coach mm -hmm. or a trainer and just get this, this nine to five stuff out of the way, I'd be great. I could win my club championship. I could just shave six strokes off my, my handicap. I could do it. And a lot of us think we can pull that off. And then, oh, man, I got to go to the boss and I got to, how do I, <laughs> how the hell do I do that? So you have this great arrangement or setup. I don't want to say arrangement. That, sound, that sounds like uh, you had to beg, borrow, and steal for you. But you have this uh, career at Boston Consulting Group that you mentioned, and you're allowed to pursue your amateur career. So uh, I'm sure you're very thankful for that. So please explain a little bit more about how you balance work and your golf career. Yeah. And it's definitely a challenge um, that I faced over the eight years since I've been there. So um, I work in the consulting industry. I do most of my work with retail clients and I've been at BCG, I guess a little over eight years now, which is crazy. It doesn't feel like that long, but it's a pretty demanding job. So I say typically I work 65 plus hours a week. I normally travel Monday through Thursday. So I get on a plane Monday morning and I stay in a hotel and then I fly back Thursday evening and then play golf on the weekends. Um, but what's really nice is I've been able to find balance to do both things by kind of carving out time for me. Um, and I think 
to some extent, the consulting industry is pretty demanding. So we have our clients' needs. The hours can be long. The travel is tough. Um, But at the same time, it's project-based. So I basically made a decision that every other year I want to take a break and I want to focus on amateur golf and do something for me to both make the job sustainable and allow me to kind of stay in that career longer, but also to kind of chase my golf dream. Um, So basically what I do every other year is I say, okay, I find the first tournament of kind of the spring or the summer. I say, okay, I want to take off from say the end of May until the end of July to play the amateur circuit. So I work with uh, my employer and I say, okay, how can I roll off my project right before then? So then I end my project, push pause, go play golf, and then come back um, when I'm ready and the tournaments are over. And then I restart full time again. So it's really nice that it's flexible to be able to kind of turn off or pause in that way. Even though it's unpaid, it's a financial commitment. But to be able to just focus on one thing has been huge for me. I'd say the years where I'm not taking time off, I'm still playing a pretty full tournament schedule. I'm a lot more tired (laughs) those years just because I try and smooth my vacation across the year. So I'll kind of play golf in the morning, compete and use all that mind space and then come back to the hotel and work and crank it out to still try and get at least a number of hours in that day and kind of taking up mind space and all those different windows makes me really tired. It's harder to focus. So it's nice to be able to like just double down on golf every other year. Now, this all sounds well and good, and it makes a lot of sense, but is this, you had to actually initiate this conversation with BCG and say, hey, I, I want to do this. I, I'm. Were they a little skeptical of this, or is this part of the normal culture there? Because um, I'm just thinking about- A little like, bit of both. Yeah, because I'm just- Somewhere in the yeah. middle. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, just, I'm just, not to cut you off, but I'm just thinking to myself, if I go to my boss, I'm like- all right, I got to try and figure out a way to phrase this. And how, mm-hmm. yeah, so I'm just curious to how, how the first conversations were. Yeah, I think somewhere in the middle. So culture at BCG, very much, we have a bunch of structural programs that allow people to kind of take time for them and for their passions. So we actually have a program called Time for You, where every kind of 12 months, I think you can do it. You can take an eight-week leave of absence. And it's a structured program that you apply for, and it gets approved by the office. And I've seen people do that to like sit on their couch and watch Netflix for eight weeks. I've seen people climb Mount Kilimanjaro or work on a campaign or whatever. Um, so there is a formal program to do it. I normally end up applying for that program and then saying, okay, I'm going to take an additional leave of absence on the back end. Uh, to extend this for golf. And I'm pretty transparent in what I'm doing. I say, like last year when I did it, I said, I'm trying to chase the spot on the Curtis Cup team. That's why I'm going to take five and a half months off this summer. It's really important to me. Um, I'll stay in touch with the office. Let me do it. And everyone's been really receptive. And um, I think some of that is the culture of the firm where the kind of partners and managing directors that I work with all know what I'm doing. They all know the dreams I'm chasing. And um, it's kind of a place where if you get your work done, you deliver value for your clients and kind of everything runs smoothly. People are really supportive to say go chase your dream we'll be here that's that's great and and i'm guessing you know i've played with people at work at my at my day job and um i'm sure you run into this all the time where you know someone that's like a 15 or 20 handicapper they see you hit a ball or or basically if they see anyone with a, a low single digit handicap hit a ball they just assume they're you're the you're the best golfer they've ever seen, and oh my gosh, mm-hmm. you're, you're, I see, you, you hit the ball just like they do on TV. So, <laughs> I, I'm guessing you've had some pretty entertaining uh, uh, rounds of golf with clients or with uh, coworkers, and the fact that you have obviously 
numerous amateur championships in the state of Virginia and a U.S. Mid-Am championship from 2015. That uh, that helps the cause when it's time for you to take a few weeks off. It definitely does. I think people can see the kind of the Mid-Am championship. My office was really supportive. They had kind of a mini celebration for it, which was awesome. That's great. And kind of they know what I'm doing, the level I play at. So I've been really lucky to find a place to work that's really supportive. So are you definitely thankful for that? Yeah. Are you uh, do you take your clubs on the road? I'm just thinking of all the creativity you have to do to balance work and and golf. Uh, I'm you know, if, if there's a client that you have to go visit at, oh, you know, I don't know, someplace near, uh, you know, near Kiowa or Hilton Head or, or maybe you have a client out at Kohler. Um, please tell me you have a good story about being creative with balancing. Maybe the clubs come with you one week. Um, or, is the, or is it just too tempting and you're just like, no, nah, I just can't do it. I wish they came with me more. Um, I haven't played a ton with clients in my time working. Uh, there are a couple projects I worked on. One was drivable. So I brought my sticks. Um, so I could play a little bit after work if I was able to, but for the most part, just getting on and off planes, I tend to not bring them just the hassle of having to check the bag and both ways and dealing with that. I tend to not bring my clubs unless I'm playing with someone over the weekend or, uh, want to fly in Sunday. So I wish I did it a bit more. I really haven't. I wish I had a good story. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, one really good story is just how you've really worked hard to get yourself onto that Curtis cup team where obviously it was supposed to be this year over in Wales. Um, it's been postponed to next year, you know, Curtis cup for people that are listening that are, uh, you know, that may not be exactly familiar with the, with the specifics. It's instead of the 10 members that you'd see on a Walker cup team, it's eight. So that makes it see, watch the math skills. It's 20% harder to make the Curtis cup team than the Walker cup team. So then you have singles on the final day, but then you have, it's over three days. So more four ball, not just foursomes. When did, I know that's, is that kind of the biggest thing on your list right now? I mean, I know you're chasing your dream, but you, you've won a U.S. mid-am. I know you want to win more. I'm Mm -hmm. guessing that's at the top of the list right now. Curtis cup is definitely at the top of my list. Um, I know I saw Megan Stassi play on the Curtis Cup in 2008, and there hasn't been a mid-amp since. I'm glad you brought Um, that up because I had that, and (laughs) I did not want to illustrate that point. So I'm so glad you brought that up. But it's something that you see the matches. I'm around amateur golf a lot. Um, You watch the Walker Cup. You watch the Curtis Cup. And it really is one of the biggest honors as an amateur golfer in the U.S. to be named to that team to compete. Um, and obviously team golf is extraordinarily fun. It's kind of a life-changing experience. So um, once I won the mid-am, I kind of said, okay, maybe this thing could be in reach because it kind of felt unattainable before then. But I was like, I now have kind of a connection to the USGA. I've seen what play is at an elite level. Let me try and make a run at this thing. Um, if I work hard and I play well in tournaments, maybe I can kind of move up the world rankings enough to get considered for the team. Cause a, it'd be really cool to have another mid-am and it's the pinnacle of amateur golf. So to have that experience would be life-changing. So I said, okay, let me try and like chart my path to do this. I'm very much a planner. So I like dig into the tournaments. I look at the world rankings. I said, okay, here's the schedule I need to play to try and make a run at this thing. So in 2019, I actually took five and a half months off work, which is a lot longer than I would normally take um, on an off year. And I played all the big tournaments. So Southern, Eastern, North, South, USAM, Canadian AM, et cetera. I was coming off my run where I made the quarterfinals in the USAM in 2018. I said, okay, that was a big milestone. Let's build upon that for next year. Um, 
because I had a pretty good 2019. Um, I won a Virginia Amateur. I made the semifinals at the Mid-Am and got named to the practice squad. I remember getting the call from the USGA to say that I'd made the practice squad and I was really excited. I had to like sit down. I was like, okay, let me sit down right. <laughs> for this conversation. It's really exciting. Um, so at that point I just said, okay, well it's September and the practice sessions in December. What do I have to do to get ready? So I'm playing kind of top level golf at that practice session to prove that I can play with the kids. Right. Right. Um, so I really put a lot of work in, I was working full time. So my normal schedule would be, I'd leave on Monday morning. I'd fly back Thursday night. I'd be kind of in the track man hitting Bay at six 30 and stay there till nine 30 on Thursday night, getting an extra practice day. in. I'd practice Friday and then all day, Saturday, Sunday, just to get ready, um, for that practice squad. And it was a great experience. Um, it was really interesting to me when I got there because I saw the rest of the practice squad and all the other gals on the team. And um, I was like, wow, I've really played a lot of golf the last two years because I know every single person here. I've played with every single person here. So that was kind of unique to be able to kind of fit in and know everybody on the squad was nice coming in. And I think as a mid-am, it was a way to let kind of some of my experience shine too. So having played a lot of amateur golf beyond college and junior golf, I've played a ton of four ball. I know the strategy, I've played some alternate shot, uh, have played the different formats. So it was a really fun experience to kind of get paired up with a different partner for every nine holes. We'd play a bunch of different matches and ended up playing really well and definitely held my own. So I was excited for the Curtis Cup uh, to possibly make the team in 2020. So now I'm kind of sitting down and looking at my schedule and saying, okay, what do I need to do to still stay in consideration right. for 2021? It's almost like you have to do the, you have to do it all over again, almost because of, because of it getting postponed due to COVID. Yeah, it's definitely an extra year of prep. Um, but I was planning on taking time off next year anyway. So the timing actually works out okay, <laughs> to good. where I'll be able to play some time uh, and play some events next year, but hopefully I'll get my game in good shape in this off season and be able to make a run and stay in consideration for that team. Now, did you have any sort of guidance from the USGA as to uh, maybe help you set a good plan as far as figuring out what to play in that would put yourself in the best light to get picked for that practice squad? Because like you said, you know, a lot of these, you know, juniors and college players, you know, they have all their collegiate events to play in. I mean, separate of COVID, obviously, but just Mm -hmm. in a normal year, you know, they don't need to worry about trying to find tournaments to play in. They have... Uh, you know, they have the Sally, they have, they have uh, tons of tournaments all over that they can play in their stake golf association, junior events. Um, then there's the USGA, but with your schedule, did they say, Hey, you know, don't focus on these or make, make sure you play in these. How did you go about looking at that? Or were you just trying to crunch the numbers yourself for the, in the wagger? How are, how are you going about this? Yeah, I never had an explicit conversation with them. It was more of me sitting down and um, in the women's game, there's really only one major tournament a week in the summer, um, or it's pretty easy to see like which ones are the majors and the big regional events, and the big national events. So I basically just started down. I looked at the wagger. I looked at the tournament schedule and said, okay, let me start with the big national tournaments. So the mid-am, the USAM, the North-South and the Canadian-am. So let me put those down on paper. And then the weeks other than that, let me find the best regional events. I pretty much crafted a full schedule where I was on the the road almost every week last summer. I was barely home, but tried to fill in the schedule with as many big events as possible. 
Unreal. That's fantastic. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned Megan Stasi. She's a former guest on the podcast. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you brought up the fact that she was the last mid am to make the team because I was looking at him like, all right, how do I, how do I uh, gracefully mention the fact that the last time uh, there was a mid am was 20, 2008, and that's when Megan Stasi was still Megan Bolger, and mm-hmm. um, and she was 30 at the time. And I'm just really getting into dangerous waters here talking about a woman's age on a podcast. But anyway, you're right around the same age, so I'm just going to skip past that. So um, what did you see at the practice sessions, not just skill level, but perhaps, you know, is that team of 19 and 20-year-olds, I guess, what did you see there that said, yeah, I, I would fit in with these girls? Yeah, I mean, the women's game is really strong at the top amateur level right now. And I'd say compared to the men's game, the women's game's a lot younger for the most part. So you see kids like Lucy Lee at the U.S. Open uh, at Pinehurst come onto the scene at 12. And they played an unreal level for 12 years old. You have Alexa Pano, who was 15 at the time, has just played at a really high level in her junior career. So I think people peak at a really young age. So women's game is quite young. So I think some of that's the reason why there hasn't been a medium on the team for a while. But, um, and I think everyone just has a really strong game in the women's game. Everyone hits it incredibly straight. People are starting to hit it incredibly long. So when I was in college, if someone hit it 280, that was crazy far. And it was really rare. And say now there's people I play against in every tournament who are hitting it 280 plus like the length in the women's game has kind of increased as well. And everyone's hitting the ball longer and making a ton more birdies than they used to. Um, and just the skill around the green, I'd say that everyone at the Curtis cup practice squad had kind of definitely sound fundamentals. They could all play the game of golf at a high level. And they also had this just like drive to win and get the ball in the hole, uh, which was fun and exciting to play. And there were lots of birdies. I, I've been around. I, I've been around some Walker Cuppers. Uh, last year, I was mm-hmm. over at Hoy Lake, and uh, I would say that there was a a whole lot of. I mean, in a friendly way, but a whole lot of banter and a whole lot of mm-hmm. ego and a whole lot of uh, swag and and just. I mean, they were they were walking pretty tall. Please tell me it is the exact same way when when the ladies that are trying to get on that Curtis Cup team archer together please tell me there's a lot of smack talking there's a lot of banter and joking and smack talking um it's definitely the same i think the team had really good camaraderie and uh everyone seemed to be pretty familiar with each other i'd say in the women's game there's less ego like there's less outward ego like i want this i want this um i think everyone just respects that everyone's a strong player and everyone can um get the ball in the hole and make a ton of birdies is crazy successful so i think it's there's less ego and I think it's just a general respect for everybody's game. Nice. Nice. Obviously COVID has has wreaked havoc. Uh, You picked up the win, as I said, at the amateur golf uh, Alliance women's amateur. Um, Talk to me about the rest of this year and kind of what is the, what are the next steps that you're doing just to kind of get ready for, for 2021? Yeah. The rest of this year is a little light because now we're in college season and there's just less tournaments out there especially during COVID. I have my USGA four ball qualifier with another mid-am Katie Miller tomorrow in Petersburg. So crossing my fingers for some birdies tomorrow. Nice. To well, the mojo is activated. You've, you've, you've been interviewed on the podcast and just, it seems to happen where uh, uh, good luck will find you. So no doubt there you'll be fine. 
So I have that. And then at the beginning of November in Virginia, we have our mixed four ball championships. I'm playing with kind of a Virginia legend, Keith Decker, who is on the senior circuit. You know, Keith, Um, Keith has won like 30 Virginia state championships and I've won nine. So we're teaming up to play uh, with each other in mixed four balls. I'm excited about that one. I played one year at the Valentine Invitational at uh, Hermitage and uh, in the tournament invite list on the back, they had all the past champions and it was, Uh, it was basically Keith Decker and then like three other guys. (laughs) Yeah, that's not surprising. Keith's kind of a legend. So we've been trying to team up in this event for the last couple of years and the dates haven't worked. So this year with the event being in November, the calendar's lined up. So that'll be a fun day. Perfect. Perfect. So I have to, we can cut this, but I have to ask. So I, so your boyfriend played in the U.S. Mid-Am and some four balls. Okay. So I guess the question I was going to ask is that people listening to this podcast may think, okay, so she just plays golf all the time. Um, how, how does, <laughs> I'm just fascinated. Mm-hmm. How do you balance that with, with, I mean, the boyfriend probably doesn't want to just play golf all the time as well, or does he? I mean, if you don't mind, what's that dynamic like? Yeah, so it's a good dynamic. And for me, it's worked out really well because he does like to play golf all the time too. Um so it's kind of a perfect match because if I think through, and this might sound a little sad, but like my life is work and golf uh-huh. and I do both of them very well. And that's where I spend my time. So it's nice that he also does the golf thing too, um, to have someone in the like 15 to 20 hours a week that I play in practice to have someone to do that with who also does it at a very high level has been really, really good for me. And we push each other and uh, it's worked really well for our relationship. Well, that's great. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure there's a whole other, uh, area of questions to go into as, as far as like, uh, you know, when you're having a bad day in the course, but he's playing well and then vice versa. And uh, I'm sure that could be entertaining as well. It's really interesting. It's like you get two times the highs and two times the lows of golf. So there's goods and bads there. So it's like when one person plays well and they kind of win a tournament, you get to celebrate that victory too. But then when someone plays bad or has a rough tournament, it's like you got to deal with that and listen to it also. So you kind of get it like golf times too, which is a little bit crazy. Uh-huh. Oh, I can imagine. So are you now, are you a, do you follow the game as far as on, I mean, I know you say you're golf crazy, mm-hmm. but I'm kind of thinking that you would much rather be out there hitting balls than watching it or following. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So are you following the professional ranks very much or is it just kind of, you know, I'd rather be out there playing. So I follow kind of all golf. I try and stay in the loop. I don't watch as much golf on TV as I normally would just because I'm kind of playing during the day if I can. But I love the primetime coverage where I can come home and turn it on. So I generally stay pretty connected to pro golf. So Lauren, before I let you go, I definitely want to hit upon what can easily be said as the crowning achievement of your amateur golf career. It's uh, winning the 2015 United States Women's Mid-Amateur Championship. You win it in your first attempt, so you turned 25, and what were your thoughts going into this tournament? Did you have high expectations, or is it just kind of a very much of an unknown? What were your expectations going into this championship? Yeah, so I was really excited to turn mid-am. So I think a couple stories that I have about kind of going into that first year in 2015. Um, we talked a little bit on the podcast earlier about how post-college, between college and mid-am, you're kind of in this no-man's land where you don't really have a home. Um, so I'd say a couple stories going into that. I turned 25 at the beginning of September, actually during the USGA State Team Championship. It was in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Okay. So I remember having my 25th birthday party 
in the hotel at the St. Louis airport at the Renaissance Hotel waiting to fly back to Virginia. And Don Woodard, I think Megan Stassi was there and a couple of the mid-ams that I had met along the way at different events. We celebrated my birthday with flatbreads in the lobby of the Renaissance Perfect. St. Louis. Perfect. So that was kind of my welcome to the mid-am games. I was really excited to kind of tee it up and play the mid-am after turning 25 in September. Um, but kind of rewinding back a month leading into it, the U.S. Amateur was at Portland Golf Club um, in Oregon in August. and. I played my two tournament rounds with Kristen Gilman, um, obviously one of the best women's amateur players ever, and she's having a really successful career on the LPGA, but I missed the cut by a couple that week, but playing two days with Kristen, and she had her high school golf coach on the bag from Texas and getting to know them, and we had talked about me turning 25 and her high school golf coach just for having a conversation. He's like, I really think you can win the mid-am. You're a great player. You have all the skills. I really think you can do it, <laughs> which was pretty cool coming from kind of her and her coach who are obviously kind of really well-known and elite players to kind of hear that and get to know them was kind of really motivation for me. So I was like, okay, let me work on my game. I know I can do this. I know I'm a great player. Sure. Uh, and then I showed up at Squire Creek and the golf course is really set up for my game. Um, it's an incredibly challenging course setup. The greens are really tricky and they're really firm. And in the mid-am game, I'm a pretty long hitter and a really good ball striker. So I kind of felt like this course is really set up for me and it's difficult. It's going to be hard to make birdies. Um, and I kind of cruised through the bracket. Um, I was only, I was tr only trailing for one hole, the entire match play kind of section. I think I lost the second hole and, my quarterfinal match. And that was the only time I was down. So I really felt like I was in control that week and I had a lot of confidence and uh, really felt like I had the game to do it. And then I remember after winning the mid-am, uh, Kristen Gilman's high school golf coach sent me a note on Facebook saying, I told you you could do it, which was kind of cool. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm guessing just getting to the match play portion and realizing that, okay, I, I made it through stroke play. I'm here in match play and realizing that okay there, there's just a few people to get through and now that i've made it let's just go ahead and get this done you said you like match play what about match play really fits with with your i guess your golf personality i think i'm just a really competitive person i'm very type a in both work and golf and um I like knowing what I have to do. So I think match play, like very much, you know exactly what you have to do on each hole. You can see everything that's going on. You have all the information. You're playing against one person and you just have to figure out how to get the ball in the hole one shot less than they do. So I think having all the information, just being right there and being in one match is something that I feed off of and something that I've always been um, pretty strong at. So it's, I don't know. I really enjoy it. I find it kind of thrilling and engaging and interesting and a challenge. So um always excited when I make the match play bracket. You've played at the USAM and numerous times and obviously the mid-am. What, um, if you can think back to all of your USGA uh, matches, whether it's been a win or, or maybe even a loss, uh, who has been someone that uh, perhaps you, you see on, on the, on the bracket that, okay, I, I might be playing this person or, you know, give me a memorable match. Other than obviously the one that clinched the, the championship for you. Yeah. So I'll actually take us to Forest Highlands last year, the 2019 mid-am. Um, so I didn't play my best the second day of stroke play. And I think I was something like the 17 seed. And Julia Potter Bob had played really well, was a stroke play medalist, kind of blitzed everybody. 
And I'm looking at the match play bracket. I'm like, huh, I'll have to play Julia in the third round. That's pretty early in the bracket. <laughs> um, so sure enough, we both win our first two matches. They go to tee it up against Julia um, in the third round. I'm like, okay, you really have to focus. <laughs> it's, um, <clears throat> ended up being five up through nine. I think I was something like six under par on the front nine. And she was one under and five down and ended up winning that one big. Um but it was just a fun match. I made a ton of long putts. I had a chip in on a par five and just kind of everything was going right. Um, so that was an exciting one to get that win. I knew it would be a tough one in that tournament. And then the next round kind of fast forward uh, to the quarterfinals, you know, how unpredictable match play is. Sure. I um, am playing like the 50 seed in the match play bracket, a good player from Canada, but definitely didn't have the same resume as Julia and I, on the back nine, I end up making four bogeys in a row. So I go four down through eight, just like mental block. I don't know what happened. Had a bunch of like brain farts, whatever. So I'm four down through eight. So I'm like, okay, Lauren, get your shit together. <laughs> uh, you're four down. You can't go five down. So Jeff's on my bag, my boyfriend. And we just kind of double down and focus and take it one hole at a time. I ended up winning that match in, I think, 21 holes with the birdie. And I was something like six under after being kind of four down so that was kind of a memorable memorable match in a different way Probably. i think i made a 35 foot putt to extend the match on 18 i had like a putt from the fringe that was 35 feet that had to go in made that one and made like a 20 footer on 21 so Gosh. um i think like two very different matches but both memorable and kind of both exhausting too oh i can imagine <laughs> i'm and i'm sure i'm sure I'm sure your boyfriend jeff was really happy that you won that second match too yeah, and winning that second match ended up getting me into the U.S. Amateur this year, so it ended up being kind yeah. of important. But, um, yeah, I think he was kind of stressful. He's like, you realize <laughs> this is a 36-hole day. Why are we playing 21 holes in the morning? <laughs> Love it. Love, I mean, valid question. I mean, these are all good yeah. questions. Fantastic. Lauren, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk a little bit about, obviously, your amateur accomplishments and everything that you're kind of shooting for with uh, with Curtis Cup. And, uh, and also growing the game, which I think that's great as well. It's, as you said, it's a, it's a demographic that uh, really trying to grow and get more uh, of the mid-am women involved with uh, tournament play. And uh, I wish you the best. I hope we can do it again sometime, and I'm glad you stopped by the back of the range. Awesome. Would love to. Thanks for having me. It's been a real honor. And there you have it. Special thanks to Lauren Greenlee for joining me on this episode here at the back of the range. Don't forget, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The link to the website for the East-West matches is available in the show notes of this episode. So make sure you check that out. And we'll see you again next time here at the back of the range.